You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There's something I want you to do, but first, Whitmer. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I talked about her once before, got her last name wrong, and got yelled at online, very nearly canceled. I'm not going to make that same mistake again. Whitmer, Whitmer, Whitmer. I've been practicing. So here's the thing. I want you to yell at Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Now, a lot of terrible people have been yelling at Governor Whitmer lately, and for very stupid reasons. Remember those images of gun-toning assholes who stormed a state capitol and threatened to hang a democratically elected governor? That was Michigan, and Whitmer was on the receiving end of all those death threats. Quick digression. The feds did nothing. Donald Trump did not send goons to Michigan, but a few bearded artisanal donut shop baristas look sideways at a federal building in Portland, and the first airborne is dispatched. Anyway, I want you to yell at Governor Whitmer for a good reason, a legit reason, a just-as-injustice reason. Tell Governor Whitmer to free Michael Thompson. Thompson sold some pot to a police informant in 1994. He was arrested, and when the police searched his home, they found two guns. His wife's gun, which she owned legally, and an antique. Because of the guns, Thompson was hit with an enhanced charge and sentenced to 60 years in prison for selling someone a little weed when he did not have a gun on him and no one got shot or killed. And he's already been in prison now for 25 years for selling weed, and he has got 30 more years to go on his sentence. He's also been infected with coronavirus recently. He's 68 years old. He has diabetes, and unless Governor Whitmer commutes his sentence, he's at high risk of dying in prison, not decades from now, hours or days from now. And he's already served 25 fucking years for selling pot. The average time served in the United States for murder Less than 13 years, according to the Department of Justice. And if that's not enough to make you mad, how about this? Michigan legalized recreational marijuana in 2018. So Michael Thompson is currently rotting in prison and may die in prison for selling pot in a state where it is no longer illegal to sell pot. There's been a showy push in in some states where recreational pot use has been legalized to clear the records of people who were arrested and charged and sometimes convicted for having pot on them for personal use, for possession. The politicians who back these efforts, Democrats for the most part, like Whitmer, have said that no one should have a criminal arrest or conviction on their records for something that is no longer a crime. And possession of pot for personal use, for recreational use, no longer a crime in many states. But these politicians who make this argument about possession don't follow it to its logical conclusion – It's not just possession that is no longer a crime. It is no longer a crime to sell pot or grow pot. And yet there are people out there right now, people like Michael Thompson, rotting in prison for selling or growing pot. And they should be released and they should have their records cleared and they should be compensated. They should be, to the best of the state's ability, made whole with some of the money the states are currently raking in now that they're taxing legal weed. Like so many men and women who are prosecuted and imprisoned because of the war on drugs, Michael Thompson is black. And his life, what's left of it, matters. If you've been out there in the streets protesting for black lives, 
take a moment to send an email to Governor Whitmer because Michael Thompson's life matters. Governor Whitmer has marched in BLM protests in Michigan and Detroit. She's condemned the inequities faced by black people in her state and around the country. And here is an inequity. Here is an injustice that she has the power to do something about and she has been asked to do something about since she was sworn in. And you know what? She's likely to do something about it. Finally, I think, I hope, if she hears from you. So, sign the petition at freemichaelthompson.com. You can also send a letter to Governor Whitmer via that website. And you can call Governor Whitmer's office at 517-373-3400. Again, that's 517-373-3400. And tell Governor Whitmer, ask Governor Whitmer, Nicely. You're not an asshole. Don't be an asshole. She's not an asshole. She just needs to act. Tell Governor Whitmer to free Michael Thompson. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Mistress Velvet, a pro-dom from Chicago, joins us to talk about some very interesting work that she is doing with her clients there, that is on the Magnum, which is twice as much show, no ads, more guests, more calls that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. All that coming up today. Hey, Dan, I have a quarantine success story for you. I'm a married 40-something gay man, and COVID-19 inspired us to try something new recently. Before we left the house, I asked my husband to shoot his load on the inside of my quarantine face mask. Later, I wore that mask to the grocery store and talked to folks as usual. It was hot for my husband to know his load was all over my face, mouth, and chin the whole time. And it was hot for me, too. I took a deep whiff of his pungent manly cum as I walked down the aisles, picking our produce and everyday food for the week. Eggs, milk, uh, cucumbers, Crisco. It was intoxicating. It was euphoric, and it was sexy. It was crazy seeing anxious people were panic buying around me. Karens were arguing with employees about their privilege to not wear a mask. I found myself rather enjoying my mask. It was relaxing. I couldn't believe it. In the center of it all, I was calmly inhaling my husband. That was my privilege. I realized that the musk of a batch of my husband's fresh milk cum is a lot like the smell of a batch of fresh baked Toll House cookies. A delicious, familiar aroma that reminds me of the warmth Love, comfort, and safety of home. Thank you for calling and sharing. And your story, so evocatively told, uh, reminded me of a story of mine that I'm going to share really quickly here at the top of the show. I had a boyfriend many years ago whose cum smelled exactly like camembert cheese, which we didn't know because this was a long time ago. We hadn't yet had camembert cheese, but we were together at a dinner party in France and they served us some camembert cheese and we were just staring at each other dumbstruck, cumstruck, as we ate what tasted exactly like his cum and watched everybody else at the table do the same. All right, we are starting every week's show with sex success stories or quarantine hot success stories. You know, we deal with a lot of people's problems and troubles and strife, and it's always nice to kick off the show on a positive note before we get into the weeds, into the trouble. If you want us to share yours at the top of the show, give us a call, and who knows, maybe your dirty sex story will dislodge one of my own. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight cis man living in Northern California. My girlfriend and I are planning on heading up to the Northwest uh, to visit my parents for my mom's birthday. We're going to get tested beforehand and drive up and take all precautions. 
Well, I'm also hoping to visit some of my friends up there in a socially distant and safe way. But that's where I'm having some issues with my girlfriend. Um, basically, one of my friends has been exhibiting off and on COVID-like symptoms for months now. And she has gotten tested twice, has tested negative both times. However, she's worried that she might still uh, have COVID and be one of these long hauler cases. I am less concerned than my girlfriend is about going and seeing her in a, a socially distant and safe manner. But that's where we've had a little bit of friction. And it's gotten to the point where my girlfriend has said that she might consider not going if I keep insisting on, on seeing my friends. I wanted to get your take on what you think about relationships where people have different uh, criteria or risk assessments or boundaries when it comes to being exposed to COVID. Call me conservative, and some people do, but I think you might want to err on the side of not killing your parents when you drive up to visit Mom, on her birthday, there are certain hardwired risks in what you're planning. You can get tested before you leave, and then you have to drive. I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of miles or how many states you're transversing, but you have to drive there, and there's a risk of exposure along the way, even if you take every precaution. There's also a risk of exposing yourself if you see a bunch of friends while you're home visiting your parents and then return to your parents. There's your friend who has had a couple of negative tests but is exhibiting symptoms. There are a lot of false negative tests. It's not outside the realm of mathematical possibility that your friend is asymptomatic or symptomatic and carrying and spreading the virus and has had two false negative tests in a row. That said, if you see your friends, if you want to see your friends and everyone is masked up and stays six feet away from each other and you are outside the risk of contracting the virus and then taking it home and killing your parents is very, very low. One of the things we know now about the virus is that it is spread primarily indoors and in closed spaces where people are exhaling and rebreathing each other's exhalations and the risk of exposure outside in the great outdoors is minor. So what your friends are doing when they meet outside is already much lower risk for transmission than gathering together inside like some of the idiots I've seen in restaurants here in Seattle lately. But it still carries a risk. Now, you can structure your visit in a way that might make your girlfriend feel a little better where you're going to hang out with your parents for a couple of days and then you're not going to see your parents anymore on this trip and you're going to see your friends outside masked up six feet away from them. Perhaps that would mollify your girlfriend or address her concerns. And you can also tell your girlfriend – but this might persuade her not to go on the trip at all, that the real risk, the, the much more acute risk, is driving with you to the Pacific Northwest from wherever you are and the incidental exposures you might encounter along the way. Travel is inherently risky. Are you going to be staying in hotels or are you going to be camping? There's a way to minimize, mitigate, even eliminate the risks on this trip. But the trip itself is probably riskier than getting together with your friends after you're done visiting your parents in the park, masked up with everyone staying six to fuck feet away from each other. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old queer woman from the Midwest who is dating a 21-year-old queer man, also from the Midwest. And 
Next month, we are planning on moving to Chicago together, which is really exciting. So we'll get to quarantine together, all that good stuff. However, one issue just makes me a little anxious, and that is I know he will want to participate in the Black Lives Matter protests that are going on in Chicago. We both care deeply about this issue. We protested in some smaller local protests together. You know, we both donated. The thing is, the Chicago protests are much bigger in scale. And honestly, I'm just kind of concerned about COVID risk. If it wasn't for COVID, I would, you know, I'd love to participate and be super going ho. But in this new apartment, I'm going to be the only income owner for both of us. And I'm a freelancer. So if I get sick, like we, we literally have no income coming in, which is really scary. And he's a student. So if he gets sick, like, you know, college moves really fast, like he'll be behind. And none of our families out there, we're not going to have a support network. I don't know. It just makes me really anxious. And I don't want to tell him not to go. I don't, I feel like I don't want to control him, but I also feel like we should be on the same page about COVID risk. I don't know. Am I over-exaggerating? Are the protests not really was risky? How do you think I should have this conversation? Headline CNN, June 24th, 2020. Black Lives Matter protests have not led to a spike in coronavirus cases, research says. A lot of people shared this concern. We had this concern about the right-wing Open the States Up protests in Michigan and other states. The assholes carrying guns, threatening the lives of elected officials about which Bob Barr did nothing didn't send in the thugs to arrest those protesters in Michigan with their rifles and their death threats, but did send in the federal thugs to harass, beat up, and arrest peaceful protesters in Portland. Anyway, <laughs> that's a digression. The protests, the BLM protests, people have been wearing masks, and the protests are, as we just said to the previous caller, outside, and the virus is not efficiently spread outside. So long as your boyfriend, if he wants to go to the protest or you want to go to the protest together, so long as you're masked up and you try to maintain as best you can during the march about six feet of distance, which isn't that hard when it's a march on the move and not a group of people crowding together against, say, a police line at a federal building in Portland, your risk of contracting the virus is very, very low. It is not non-existent. The only safe sex is the sex you don't have. Remember that from 1984, everybody? No, you don't. Google it. The only safe, totally safe, perfectly safe, no risk at all protest is the one you don't go to. And so if you are 100% risk averse, if you can't tolerate any risk at all, then you shouldn't go to the protest. And if you can't tolerate any risk, uh, sort of knock on risk from your boyfriend going to the protest, he shouldn't go either. But I don't think you want to exaggerate the risks of going to the protest, considering what we now know about these protests that have been going on for months and they are not a vector for COVID. Wear your mask, hang back a little bit, you will be safe. You will also be safe from usually arrest and violence if you're not at the very front of the protest, if you go to the protest during the day. And there are ways to support the protests and the protesters without going to the protests. I have friends who are immunocompromised who couldn't go to the protests. They made a bunch of signs and then they dropped them off at the protest for other people who could be at the protest. You can contribute to bail funds for protesters if you guys can spare the money. And you can amplify the voices of protesters on social media. There are ways for you to support the protests without going. But the risk of going, so long as you are masked up and outside, are very low. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old, mostly straight, cis woman. And my problem is this. I 
hate giving blowjobs. I have always hated giving them. And I think the main reason I hate giving them is they are painful for me. I have a TMJ disorder, which is, I think, actually pretty common among people where um, one side of your jaw pops pretty much every time it opens and there's some chronic strain and pain associated with that. So it's really uncomfortable for me to have my jaw open for long periods of time, like when I'm going down on a guy. However, you know, for me on the receiving end, oral sex is like the best thing ever. And so it's frustrating for me to so not enjoy it on the giving end. So I guess I'm wondering, are there like things I can be doing to lessen the stress on my jaw as I'm going through the motions? Or like, is there some mental way to kind of like push past it or whatever? It's just, I enjoy giving other people pleasure and it's hard for me to not enjoy what I consider a pretty essential part of sex life. If there's not a way around the physical sort of discomfort, do I just like suck it up? No pun intended, because it is that important to me and usually to the people I date. Or do I just say like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then, you know, resign myself to only dating people who are okay with that, which would probably be pretty slim since I know for me, like if a guy ever said he didn't do oral, like that would kind of be a deal breaker. The temporomandibular joint is the hinge basically where the jaw attaches to the skull and people with TMJ disorders, disorders of that joint, experience pain, opening their mouths for long periods of time, chewing, giving blowjobs. It's a legitimate basically out pass. You don't have to do this thing that causes you pain. You would like to do this thing. You would love to do this thing. You'd love to give oral sex. You'd love to suck that dick for hours on end, but you physically can't without causing yourself pain. And you shouldn't date any dude who can't wrap his head around that. Now, there are ways to get creative and simulate to the best of your abilities some of that oral sex experience for your partner after he goes down on you for hours. I would recommend getting a silicone cock sheath. It's kind of like a kind of bulbous, fat-looking tube that wraps around the dick that you can move up and down the dick. And it will create kind of the sensations of getting a blowjob and then just concentrate your attentions orally on the head of the dick. You know, you don't have to open your mouth very far. You can just like produce a lot of saliva and keep the cock sheath moving up and down his dick while sucking with your jaw pretty much closed using your lips and, and tonguing a little bit the head of the dick. And you will be down there face down in his lap. It will, if he closes his eyes or you slap a blindfold on him, feel very similar to getting a blowjob. There are also guys out there who love to eat pussy and it's not necessarily transactional for them. They're not eating your pussy in exchange for the blowjob that you're going to give them. They eat your pussy because it's their favorite thing and they love eating pussy. And if a guy is down for eating your pussy, it loves eating your pussy for himself because it turns him on and he's not hung up on or invested in oral being perfectly reciprocal. Take that fucking guess for an answer, date that guy, date those guys, and then find one or two of those guys to marry. Let yourself off the hook. Don't guilt trip yourself about this. You have a legit medical condition. makes it hard for you to suck dick. So you are not obligated to suck dick. Hi, Dan. I'm a female from the Midwest, bisexual. I've been in a relationship with my boyfriend for about a year and a half now. I love him to death. 
he loves me. We have great sex a lot of the time, but he feels very insecure about performing oral sex on me. And this, you know, uh, that definitely makes me feel insecure about my own body, but I absolutely don't want to pressure him or make him feel uncomfortable anyway, in any way. So I'm just wondering if you have any advice as to how, you know, I could feel less insecure and maybe we could explore this type of sex without me pressuring him or encouraging his own insecurities. Is it an insecurity that's the issue or is it an aversion that's the issue. If he is insecure, and I'm just going to run with insecure, maybe he hasn't done this. Maybe he worries about his performance. Maybe he doesn't think he's going to be able to please you. Maybe he had a past negative experience with a girlfriend where he went down on her and she told him he was terrible at it or shamed him for even wanting to do it. That does happen. Sometimes that happens to dudes, mostly happens to women, mostly dudes who do that, but maybe that happened to him. Maybe a woman did that to him and he is terribly insecure. Maybe he's inexperienced and that leads to his insecurity because he doesn't know how to do it or what to do. And this is where you have to communicate with him about your desires. This is where you have to communicate to him about what exactly works for you. I wrote a column a million years ago where I jokingly invited women to write in and tell men how to eat pussy. And women wrote in with definitive statements about how it should be done. And they were all really crazy different Focus on the clit, a woman said. Always focus on the clit. Focus on the labia, a lot of spit, not a lot of spit. Uh, rapid movements, slow movements. Women were all over the map uh, because everyone's experience of sexual pleasure is different and very, very subjective. And what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another person. If his issue is he doesn't know how to work this for you, well, then it falls to you to clearly communicate to him how to eat your pussy. And it may be a relief to him if you just used his face like a sex toy. You know, if you lay back and he just has to fly blind into eating your pussy and gas at what works for you. And because you're so inhibited about communicating to him because you don't want to make him feel pressured that you're not giving him any actionable feedback, well, then he may have issues with it. Then he may feel insecure. It may make performing oral on you for him a stress generator. And a little more direct communication, which is not to be confused with pressure, could alleviate that stress, could make him feel less insecure about his performance. So tell him. Tell him what works for you. Tell him how you like it while he's doing it. Give him instructions. Communicate. His face is in your crotch. You should be able to open your mouth and talk to that person who is eating your pussy and let him know what works for you what isn't working for you and redirect him and maybe even, you know, take him by the ears and use his face as a sex toy, which is basically what his face is at that moment. Now, if he is, you know, raising the flag of insecurity when he actually is averse to performing oral sex, well, that's a different issue. And it may not be one that anything that I've said to you can solve. There are guys out there who won't do it. And it's not that they are insecure about it. It's that they are disgusted by it, which I do not understand. If you want to put your dick in there, it seems to me that you should be willing to put your tongue in there. That is the standard. I've always applied to ass and everything else. And I think that applies to pussy as well for people who sleep with people with pussies. So 
run it to ground, pin him down. If it's in security because he needs more information and feedback, give him that information and feedback. If it's about him feeling like he's supposed to be in control while he's eating your pussy and he doesn't know what to do, you take control while he's eating your pussy. If he is averse to eating pussy and you need your pussy eaten to be content in a long-term sexually exclusive relationship, well, then he is not the guy that you want to be in a long-term sexually exclusive relationship with. Hi, Dan. I am calling from the Rocky Mountains. I'm in a weird family situation. I found out that my sister-in-law's husband has been cheating on her, and I'm not sure if I should tell her or not. I feel like I'm making a decision for her, whether I keep this information to myself or I tell her what I know. My sister-in-law and her husband have been married for 10 years. They have two kids under the age of eight, and she's a stay-at-home mom and is totally financially dependent on him. They moved to our town um, a year ago to be closer to family. But he kept a place to stay in the state they moved from and has continued to work there since the move. He has a well-paying job there and lives where he works most of the time. He visits his wife and kids here for about a week every month or two. They've been having some trouble with their marriage in the last year and things hit a tipping point in February or March. He can be a heavy drinker and he's been known to say some pretty inconsiderate things when he drinks. My sister-in-law started bending to a guy friend of hers around that time, and when her husband found out about that, he got pretty upset. He accused her of cheating, and I don't really know the extent of the relationship that she had with this friend of hers, but as far as I know, he was just someone that she could talk to about her problems. Her husband hopped on a dating app around that time and actually ended up trying to start something with a close friend of mine who I've been friends with since fourth grade. He told her that if his wife got to have a boyfriend behind his back, then he got to have a secret girlfriend too. Then he told her that he's had a crush on her since they met at my wedding seven years ago. He flirted with her and vented about his marriage. He also said some weird things about my sister-in-law involving some illicit drug use, which I haven't seen any evidence of on a daily basis at least, certainly not to the extent that he was describing in his messages to my friend. He also told her that he's been messing around with other girls for a while at his place that he has out of state. The whole thing was just strange, and my friend wasn't sure how to tell me until recently. Since this all happened, my sister-in-law and her husband have been going to counseling, and things do seem better between the two of them. I don't know what they've disclosed to one another. I don't know the terms of their relationship. Um, I don't know if he's still seeing other women. I don't know if my sister-in-law would or would not want to know any of this. Just looking for some perspective. I love her very much, and I just want to do right by her. You say that you love your sister-in-law very much. What you don't say is that your sister-in-law confides in you. There was some other friend, a male friend that she was confiding in. Her husband thought that they were fucking. You don't think that your sister-in-law is capable of cheating. Uh, Spoiler alert, a lot of people we don't think are capable of cheating. Cheat, that's how people get away with cheating. Anyway, she hasn't asked you for your advice. She hasn't asked you for your input, I assume. She's not confiding in you. And so I wonder whether it would be wise for you to burst in with what you know because your sister-in-law's husband was so reckless as to hit on a friend of yours who eventually confided in you about what your sister-in-law's husband had told her. You have now the burden of knowledge and the question is do you shift that burden onto your sister-in-law's shoulders? 
They have two young kids. Your sister-in-law is financially dependent on her husband. Post-divorce, she will still be financially dependent on her husband. He can still pay her child support and alimony. He can still support her. So it's not like should the relationship end, your sister-in-law and her kids will be on the street. But it certainly would be disruptive if you know the shit hit the fan or your sister-in-law were to find out you know, something she may have already suspected. They are living apart seven weeks out of eight. I would, in that circumstance, assume that maybe my partner was doing whatever they needed to do to stay married and stay sane under those circumstances if I were in a monogamous marriage, which I'm not and never will be. But given those circumstances, seven out of eight weeks, both of them out of each other's sight, both of them on their own, one of them doing all of the childcare and all of the household labor, I would just assume that they weren't spending all that time alone necessarily. And perhaps we had entered a period of our marriage where sexual exclusivity, emotional exclusivity wasn't a defining characteristic if we were not actually estranged from one another given those circumstances. And maybe those circumstances were imposed. But you say your sister made this choice to move closer to you guys, home to family, and her husband's job keeps him away. Maybe that was by design. Maybe your sister-in-law wanted to be away from her husband more. Maybe your husband engineered that after the fact. I don't know. I think you should suss out your sister-in-law before you decide whether to tell her what you know. You have a conversation with her. You know that they're in counseling. If you have a conversation with her about how things are going and you are empathetic and concerned, you may find out from that conversation that things are much better now, that the counseling is working, that they're putting some things that they both did behind them. There may be a tacit acknowledgement in that circumspect conversation that your sister-in-law knows and might not, you know, sometimes a person knows that they've been cheated on and knowing that other people know compounds the hurt because it brings this other dimension of humiliation or perceiving others pitying you or thinking you're a fool for staying in the marriage and that can compound the pain. And you may not, after sussing around for a little bit, want to compound the pain. Uh, other people's marriages are mysteries to us. Sometimes people cheat and then they pull out of it and then they do better and then they recommit to their marriage and the marriage survives and it's good for both partners in that marriage that it survives, good for their children, good for their extended families that the marriage survives. But the revelation of the infidelity would have made it impossible for the marriage to survive. So sometimes just from a utilitarian perspective, it is better for the person who was cheated on never to find out and not to know. And sometimes for that, all of that good to come from it, the you know, people recommitting to each other, falling back in love with each other, committing to parenting under one roof together, committing to staying together. It is better for that person to not know and, and better for the person who was cheated on, for the people in their life who may know that they were cheated on, to keep their mouths shut eternally. This isn't about protecting a serial adulterer. This isn't about protecting someone who's putting someone you love at risk. If you can determine that that's not the case, that he's not a serial adulterer, even if there was this period where he was messing around a little bit because it seemed to him the marriage was falling apart. If there's no information that you have at hand that he's behaving in a reckless way, putting her health at risk or the kids at risk, I would err on the side of staying the fuck out of it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something straight cis female living on the West Coast. About a year ago, my sister found a pair of my dirty underwear 
in a Ziploc bag and something she called her husband's jack-off bag. She confronted him, and under duress, he admitted they were mine. He then blamed me, claiming we had hooked up years ago, and since then, he's had a weird thing for me. This is totally untrue, and thankfully, my sister didn't believe him. He also admitted that he's had an obsession with women's panties since he was a teenager and that he took mine impulsively while alone in my apartment. I understand that a panty kink is common and I try to be GGG and kink positive, but what he did feels like a violation. My sister has asked me not to tell our parents, which I agreed to, but this leaves me in a vulnerable position since they continue to include him in family gatherings and holidays. I've seen him a couple of times since, but we haven't spoken. My question is about what I should do next. Recently, when I talked to my sister, she asked me to forgive him and be the bigger person. But the thought of seeing him makes me feel physically sick, knowing he was using my underwear for possibly months to get off while acting like a loving brother-in-law to my face. Am I overreacting or is it not that big of a deal? Should I say fuck it and tell my parents? Should I confront him? Or should I just forgive and forget for my sister's sake? So this is a really fucked up situation. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I could almost get past. I could almost see if, you know, the shoes were on the other feet or the panties were on the other bottom. I could almost see forgiving my brother-in-law for something like this. Not that I don't think any of my brother-in-laws would ever uh-huh. steal my tattered old American apparel underpants, you know, cause sometimes people get inappropriate crushes. Sometimes, you know, there is a, almost an OCD ish element to some people's uh, obsessions with things like panties. Uh, there's no promise from the universe that people who are related to us by blood might not be into us as well as creepy as that is to think about. Right. And Mm -hmm. if if your brother-in-law had just been, you know, secretly perving on a pair of your panties that he absconded with, yeah, it's a violation that you know about it. It, It's a violation that he did it. It's, you know, he risked making you feel violated by doing it in the first place if he got caught. What really, I listened to your call a couple of times and what I really stumble on is the accusation that he made that you had slept with him that you had slept with your yep. sister's husband. And so it was your fault that he was sexually obsessed with you. It was your fault that he stole his underwear. He really, in that moment, to protect himself instead of taking any responsibility, and he hasn't apologized to him to you himself. He's never taken responsibility. Your sister is the one asking you to forgive him. He's not asking you for forgiveness. But in that moment when he got caught, he tried to nuke your relationship with your sister. Yeah, no, totally. And that's, was you know part of what I was hung up on for sure was just that that was his go-to you know originally like he was mad at her for going through his stuff Mm -hmm. that was his first reaction was like you know you're snooping on my stuff and I mean it was in their apartment that they share and she was like cleaning up and found this bag that he calls or she calls his jack-off bag Mm -hmm. and like has you know tools and stuff like that like stuff he uses and then you know, my underwear and a Ziploc bag. And (laughs) so I think, you know, yeah, just like, I mean, just really creepy in general. And then ultimately try to, why did he tell your sister (laughs) that they were your underwear? So he didn't. So she called me and 
thought he was cheating on her was like, I found these underwear, you know, cause me and her are really close. Mm-hmm. And so then she started describing them and I realized that they were mine. And I was like, you know, I asked my husband, like, have you seen these underwear? You know, cause of course I don't keep an inventory of my underwear. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, well you did, didn't used to, I bet you do now. I would now if I were. Yeah, for shoes. sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we moved cities, so he doesn't live by us anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have some peace of mind there. But yeah, so we and her figured out that they were mine. So then when she initially confronted him, he, you know, denied, denied, and then finally... Accused, accused. Denied, denied, accused, accused. A- you of having fucked him after they were married, I assume? That it was an accusation that you fucked your no. sister? Okay, before they were married? Yes. Yeah. This was before they were dating. Um, all of us were friends Mm -hmm. and we, me and my sister actually lived with him for like six months, just like while we were all friends, he had a big house. Um, Mm -hmm. so he was saying, you know, yeah, I think it was the, before her and him started dating that me and him had hooked up, which yeah, it was so untrue. And it's just like, I mean, like I said, I mean, she didn't believe him, but yeah, so it's not as bad as I thought it was. I thought he had accused you of fucking him after your sister married him. That that he had no, an affair no, with no, you. yeah. Or you had had an affair with her that you mm-hmm. fucked the sister's husband. But it, it's still, <laughs> it's still deflecting responsibility. Like he, he, you should mm-hmm. tell your sister. Maybe I can get to a point where I can forgive him. Our relationship will never be what it was. I will never feel comfortable or safe around him or want him in my space or my house. But. If I'm going to get to a place where I can, you know, forgive him and we can have a damaged relationship that limps along at family gatherings, he has to ask for forgiveness. He has to apologize to me, not you. He has to take some responsibility. And he has tried, he has texted me maybe like a two months after it happened. It was because it happened right before Thanksgiving. Oh my God. Of course it did. Because Thanksgiving's yeah, are awful enough. <laughs> Just on the, just, you know, just on their own terms. There's always some like shitty family crap that like comes out, you know, the second or third week of November because Thanksgiving isn't stressful yep. enough. The universe conspires with always to make Thanksgiving as terrible as it possibly can be. Yes, exactly. So it was like right before all the family stuff. And so he did text me um, a couple weeks after and, and did, you know, and said like he was sorry that, you know, and he, is going to make it up to me. And I, I, you know, I responded and I told him that, you know, I wasn't in a place where I felt like I could really move on or talk to him. You know, I just felt so violated. Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, what are you willing to endure for your sister mm-hmm. out of loyalty to your yeah. sister? You, I think instead of having a conversation with her about how he needs to ask for forgiveness, but I think he needs to ask again and maybe ask face to face. Uh, you need to have a conversation mm-hmm. with your sister about why she is staying with this guy. You know, what's on the plus side of the ledger that makes her, despite the lies and, you know, the thing for panties and the thing for you and, you know, violating her sister, why she's choosing to stay in this relationship. And relationships are complicated and messy. And, you know, it's easy to tell people to get out of relationships with people who've done a creepy, terrible thing. Uh, but extricating yourself from a relationship, you know, is not always that Easy, and it's not always something that you necessarily want to do. If they have pluses, mm-hmm. or you're economically dependent, or mix, you know, interdependent, or you have kids together, there can be reasons that people stay in a, a marriage that is forever damaged. 
by a revelation like this, right? And if you feel those reasons for your sister staying are legitimate, then out of loyalty and love for your sister, you can maybe get to a place where you can forgive him. It'll never be what it was, the friendship or your ability to be comfortable at ease around him. That will never return. And your sister can't ask you for that. But you can then, you know, slap a, mile, a smile on your face at the next Thanksgiving and stuff this as best you can down the memory hole and never let him within 100,000 miles of your panty drawer ever again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I think that's, like, the the part I'm struggling with is, like, like I said, I mean, every time now he's going to come to something, I'm just, like, I don't want to interact with him at all. And it really does tear apart our our family dynamic, you know, I mean, it's only me and her, the, you know, the two kids, right. in the family. So, mm-hmm. and, and then the of only, course, I mean, my the only two who are aware of knows. it. Yes. Well, my husband knows mm-hmm. and I mean, obviously he knows. So yeah, it's the four of us um, well, that's always that are be, kind of trying to like, it's just going to be a strained relationship. It's never going to be what it was. You're never yeah. going to be hundred percent comfortable around him. You should limit your exposure and then, you know, confront him. I think you should confront him face to face, demand an apology. And and I okay. think confront him with, you know, first you lied. Then you basically tried to shift all responsibility onto me as if somehow I had fucked you and therefore you had a right to steal my panties. Therefore, it's understandable that you would do this or permissible. Mm-hmm. And And that's not true. And I need you to acknowledge that. And then... I will smile and nod. You will smile and nod. But that is the extent of our relationship. There are strained relationships in every family. There are, you know, brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, relatives, uncles, cousins, where it's just obvious to everyone in the room that that relationship soured between that person and one other person. And there's nothing that can be done about it. And so you don't try and you try not to focus on it and you step around it. And that's how you keep the peace in a large extended family where someone shit the bed in a spectacular way. And for whatever reason, that person isn't being exiled or divorced or chucked out or excluded, but you have to be okay with that. You, you, you know, I, I, I wonder if I hope this doesn't end up poisoning your relationship with your sister where you don't feel not just violated by what her husband did, but then violated by what your sister is asking you to do. And you need some clarity from her about exactly what she's asking for. She, she's asking for you to mm-hmm. tolerate him. You can maybe do that. If she's asking for you to embrace him and act like this didn't happen, you can't do that. And she shouldn't ask you to do that. That would make what she's asking also a violation. I mean, she is respectful of my boundaries. She asked me, like, can I invite my husband? Um, And I will, you know, typically kind of make a face and just say, like, well, like, if you want to or... You know, I guess like it's it's kind of so then that's when she had asked me, like, can't you just be the bigger person and forgive him? Right. There could be a line, though, between her standing with him and her taking his side that she's obviously sticking with him. She's staying in the marriage. And Mm -hmm. she's making whatever compromises that she needs to make to stay in the marriage. She has managed to forgive him. So you just need to decide for yourself and communicate to your sister what you're willing to tolerate, what you're not willing to tolerate. And, you know, it's never going to go back to what it was. And your sister can't ask you to pretend. She can't ask you to put up with him. She can't ask you to interact with him, perhaps in a very minimal way. And maybe you can do Mm -hmm. that for her. But he has to fucking apologize and take some responsibility 
first. And it doesn't sound like he really has. A tossed off text message that you don't even know for sure he sent to you. Maybe your sister grabbed his phone. Doesn't cut it. Yeah. Good luck. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank <laughs> well, you for hey, calling. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate the call. Yeah. You help me. I'll just talk to my sister. <laughs> Good luck. All right. Bye. Thank you. Hey, so this is kind of a weird situation I found myself in, and I'm wondering if this has happened to other people, but um, I'm still on apps, I guess, out of futility. I don't know. And um, recently, somebody liked me on a dating app who I had actually met before, like just uh, a month before quarantine back in February. And he was part of this like very small group setting because we had a mutual friend in common. And we talked for maybe two hours in this small group setting. And so when he liked me on this dating app, I matched with him. And I said, oh, my God, like, I know you. I met you a couple of months ago. And then he had no memory of me and said he had no memory of me. And then I kind of reminded him of, like, which bar I had met him at and which friend we had in common. And he still, like, claimed to not recognize faces or remember anything or, I guess, have, like, short-term memory loss. I have no idea. And then I asked a mutual friend about it who said, no, he doesn't have face blindness, but he's kind of an odd guy. And then um, also this person is an agent in Hollywood. And I just feel like if you're an agent in Hollywood, like you have to be really good with remembering people and knowing who they are. And so I just want to know, like, was I negged? Like, I feel like it's such a strange thing to like, like somebody's profile who who you've met before and then genuinely not remember them. So I like, how could I be that forgettable? Are you into this guy? You had that conversation with him for a couple of hours in the bar, you matched with him on the dating app. Is there some interest here? Okay. Are you going to let your ego get in the way of that? He may have face blindness. Some people have milder cases of face blindness. He may have been drunk off his ass in that bar. It may have been dark in that bar. It's also possible that your photos that you have on your dating app or that you use on dating apps don't quite capture your essence. They're not necessarily representative. I'm not suggesting that they're misleading in any way, but maybe your pics, you know, we pick pics for apps that sometimes people when they meet us are like, oh, you don't look quite like your pics. That can be a positive. That can be a negative. Some people very manipulatively pick, you know, 20 year old pics to put on dating apps or pics when they were much slimmer or much larger, depending on the preference of the person they're attempting to attract. And can be misleading in that way. Our photos on dating apps can be misleading. It's also, it could just be innocent. And despite being an agent in Hollywood and agents in Hollywood tend to be people who remember people, perhaps that's not one of his skills as an agent in Hollywood. Maybe he has other agent in Hollywood skills that are more highly refined than that particular one. You know, they say that politicians, it makes a good politician like Bill Clinton. If he remembers everybody they ever met, remembers their name as well. And while that's a skill that really benefits a politician, not all politicians have it, not to Bill Clinton's extent, which is why people talk about Bill Clinton having that particular superpower. Maybe this agent doesn't have that particular agent in Hollywood superpower. So, Instead of being wounded, instead of assuming he's nagging you or reading an insult into what could just be an innocent misunderstanding, it was dark that night in the bar, maybe he had a little too much to drink that night in the bar, doesn't remember much, or maybe your photos don't quite capture your essence, meet with him. And then after you meet with him, perhaps go on a date with him, you did match, if there's mutual interest, 
this will become, you know, a funny story about your relationship origin, your funny, amusing anecdote about how you met and then had to re-meet each other and had to remind him who you were and that he had already met you and ha ha ha, your friends will tell this story at your wedding if it all works we're going to take a, a quick break from your calls to talk with Mistress Velvet, Chicago's premier African dominatrix. HuffPo has called her the dominatrix with a syllabus. Hey, Mistress Velvet, thank you so much for making some time for us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we talk about your syllabus, can you tell us how you got into professional domination? Yeah. So, you know, I've been doing sex work for a little over a decade now. Um, I've done all different kinds. I've done clips. I've been camming. I've been a sugar baby. Um, and then kind of as I was having my like sexual awakening as well as my uh, like feminist awakening and radicalizing in my early to mid twenties, I realized that I wanted to do expert for my relationship with my clients who are mostly, you know, cisgender men um, was different and I wanted to feel some power. And so I kind of started in this kind of elementary way where I was like, oh my gosh, hitting men, especially white men is a feminist thing to do. And then it also slowly became much more than that and something deeper than that in a space where I was then kind of processing my own trauma and, you know, kind of acting out my activism through BDSM. So, yeah, I got into it for a couple of different reasons and I stayed because of the, you know, the, the benefits and the healing that it brought me. There's a lot of conversation, you know, about BDSM and whether if you're, you know, processing your trauma or doing BDSM for the catharsis, really kind of pur to purge your trauma, that it's somehow tainted or illegitimate or, or, or maybe uh, unhealthy. You would disagree. I completely disagree. I think something about BDSM is that it taught me like interpersonal, healthy relationship dynamics that I didn't get from our society that was very patriarchal. So trigger warning, you know, I'm a victim or I'm a survivor of multiple forms of like sexual violence. And I internalized all of that in addition to like things around my gender and being a femme and thought that I should be treated in a certain way because that's what gender roles are and that's what expectations are intimately and sexually. And BDSM is where I learned, no, this doesn't have to be this way. I can advocate for myself. I can have boundaries. I can ask for who I want. I could feel pleasure. And so I actually think the folks that like maybe are, you know, not receptive to that idea, um, I just haven't really engaged with like ethical BDSM in the way that I have. Yeah, I think some people who want to pathologize it don't understand how thoroughly BDSM centers consent and negotiations, which a mm -hmm. lot of people think that if you're talking about sex, if you're having to process it or really negotiate around it, that you're ruining it, that, that that's, it should just happen spontaneously. And what's wonderful about BDSM and can really create a safe space for people who are drawn to it erotically to begin with is that it really does center negotiation and consent in a thoughtful way. And it's not about spontaneity. It's about making a plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this pathology, this pathologizing of BDSM, right, is such a historical thing that's happened, like, and also the intersections with BDSM with queer communities. So people, I think their, like, hatred of BDSM is also stemming from a place of hatred of the commodification of sector, hatred of, like, sexual liberation and expression, and hatred of, like, sexual like um, expansion and gender expansion. So I think it's tied in to a lot of different things that is more than just BDSM itself. 
you think deeply about this. That's so clear. And you have to, you have to be thoughtful about BDSM if you're going to practice it. But what is so interesting about your approach and what you've been doing is that you make your clients think deeply about it, not just about BDSM. Tell us about your syllabus, your required reading for your clients. When did it first occur to you to order your clients to read and what is on that list? Yeah, so it's funny because when I was really transitioning into Mistress Velvet and her embodying like my identity and who I was, I was also in grad school. So I was also doing my master's in women's and gender studies with the focus on African diaspora studies. And so one client who I still have, he's so amazing um, and he's really grown. He would talk a lot about being a white man in Chicago and being really rich, like like really high up in a company and not ever interacting with like a lot of people of color, especially black women. And he was just kind of teasing out and working through his privilege. And, you know, that was a lot to carry. Like it was, a, it's a lot to already be a provider uh, of a mm-hmm. service and then to also kind of engage with and carry their own kind of feelings and things that they're going through. And so uh, as I was kind of doing my own readings in my lectures, I started to <laughs> be like, you should read this thing that we read in school today and, and have these conversations that kind of mirrored the conversations that I was having in academia. Um, and that became extremely cathartic for me, which is why I expanded it to most of my clients, because it was just like, I might be the only Black person, much less Black them, much less queer, much less sex worker that these people are interacting with. And it started to feel really important for them to like get something out of it besides their own selfish kind of sexual needs. The syllabus has really changed this year with um, all that's been going on with the uprisings and like this continuous protest against the the murder of Black people. I'm seeing people that I haven't seen in a while be like, I remember you read some stuff. Now Black Lives Matter movement is like happening in a way that it hasn't. Can we continue doing readings? So you're, so you're educating your clients in a way, you know, they, 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 they come to you, they want to see you, they want to see you again. So you have this power and you've leveraged that power to, you know, you've required them if they want to see you again or to keep seeing you to do some reading about who you are and who they are and these power structures and racism and gender. And that is just amazing and, and, and wonderful. And, and you know, I guess I'm kind of backing into to this question. Sometimes I get calls from people who feel conflicted because they're attracted to someone or they're with somebody who's really into them, but that person isn't pro-choice. Every once in a while, maybe even that person voted for Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. is it legitimate to use the leverage of, you know, making yourself present and available to that person in order to, you know, pry their mind open? You, that's what you're doing. Can other people legitimately do the same? I think absolutely. And I think speaking as a dom specifically, it also really kind of interrogates and makes makes folks question like, oh, you might say that you really want to feel submissive and and, and experience like a true loss of power. But what if I push your boundaries about that? Like, what if I change your conceptualization of what the loss of power is actually going to look like? Because a lot of times these people didn't initially come to me being like, hey, I'm going to pay you to force me to read some dense text. They're like, hey, I'm going to pay you to force me to like fuck you in the asshole. So what happens when I'm like, here are actually my priorities. Um, It really helps people actually kind of interrogate what submission means to them. And I take a lot of what I do within my practice into my personal life. You know, I think 
I, I'm only attracted to certain kinds of people. And so it makes sense that um, the people that I'm attracted to, like outside of work, that would happen within my sex work. And I think that we can take some of what I'm doing and, and apply it to different parts of our lives, not just within sex work and BDSM. Well, yeah, and there's power in all interpersonal relationships and power in all romantic relationships. And often the power is just our, our presence, even if we didn't seek it, even if it's not some sort of formalized or eroticized DS dynamic, we have power and we can ask the people that we're with to do better and be better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, like what I'm doing is not like, it's very basic. Like I'm asking for folks to, to humanize black people and to humanize queer black femmes and sex workers and just advocating for myself. Like the thing that we're calling power and calling radical is actually like really not a big deal, but we live in this like white supremacist society. And so I'm doing this with my clients, but it's similar to the expectations that I have from friends or from people I work with or from my intimate partners. Like you have to humanize me and see that I am a person and et cetera, et cetera. Can you tell the difference when, when a client comes through the door who sees you as an object versus a client who comes through the door and sees you as a person? How, how is it that you can perceive that? What, what, what are the tells? So as long as white supremacy and the patriarchy and all of these class oppressions and everything and everything exists, every person is going to see me as an object. Like I cannot, I cannot, in order for me to no longer be objectified and fetishized, we have to remove and dismantle these systems that we have of oppression. And so I don't have the expectation that any of these people are going to see me not as an object. I think what I work to is reducing how much they see me as an object. Well, or is the trick to just, I, I mean, I have said on the show that, you know, we are also objects that I don't think mm-hmm. objectification in all instances is is wrong. It's that if you mm-hmm. only see a person as an object, that you don't see their full humanity as well as, you know, the physical mass that they are, right? And the right, traits that right. may attract you. You know, we're kind of drawn to each other. You know, you see people across a crowded room, you see somebody's profile pic online, you're kind of drawn to them first for the surface. And you're a shitty partner and a shitty person if that's all you're interested in or all you're able to perceive. So is objectification always problematic or can it be a positive if it's bundled with the rest of that, you know, the rest of the person's humanity? I think it depends on who is being objectified and who is doing the objectifying. I don't find it problematic for myself with my specific identities to objectify white men. It's like kind of like I see it as like a reverse racism thing. Like I feel like it doesn't almost doesn't even really exist. Um, I do think it's problematic when they objectify me and that's like kind of whatever our initial approach is and relationship is. But also it's really, I'm in a, I have the capacity and I have the privilege to be able to, to sit with that, to hold their objectifying of me and try to transform it into something else and into a learning experience so that they're not doing it as much to other people. And it's not about fetishizing you, but it's about fetishizing the dynamic, fetishizing the power, the activities. It's about not fetishizing, you know, like continents and peoples and borders and instead transforming like 
our play also like I like people you know you want this like very like physical experience it's so interesting because I'm a dom and I'm engaging in this like power play but as a service provider it's almost like I'm a bottom in some ways like you're coming to me and if I did not do what you're asking for if I didn't provide the service you're asking for you wouldn't keep coming to me you would go to someone else and so I have to get kind of give in I have to give in to this like interesting power play that we have at hand have it going on and then try to figure out how to have the upper hand and have their attention throughout all of it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that is the trick for doms, right? The bottom is kind of secretly in charge. You negotiate a scene yeah, and then you hit those marks <laughs> and where doms can have fun and play is around the margins and, and the edges mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. what a, what a sub is willing, you know, not things that violate their boundaries or, the, or limits, but what a sub might be willing to endure to get to do with you those things that they enjoy as a sub. And exactly. you have gotten subs to do the reading that they probably should have been required to do in high school and college, but weren't. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's a lot of power. (laughs) Yeah, it is a lot of power and you're using your power for good, not just for loads. Um, Real quickly, uh, this is a moment where we're all thinking, hopefully all of us thinking more deeply about power dynamics um, and professional domination, obviously about power, eroticized power dynamics. Some people have suggested that BDSM, uh, is problematic for this reason, particularly uh, in light of the, uh, the the movement against police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement, um, that BDSM is problematic and should be canceled. You would obviously, I hope, disagree. I think it's completely reductive. I think um, as people where we are fighting these systems of oppression and fighting this violence, we need to be able to find those moments of pleasure and catharsis. And I think that we can look at like the things that we like. I think we have to be critical of like our preferences and, and things that we like, but I think we can also experience things like plain uh, pain and, and doing that alongside pleasure and all of these different things that, um, you know, like if someone in our society slapping me, just coming up to me and slapping me in the face would be an extremely violent and disrespectful thing to do. But I think there's something so like beauty, beautiful and creative about creating a a space that is BDSM where something that looks like that would be extremely violent in another context can bring you so much pleasure. And so I think it's really reductive to just look at some of the things around BDSM, particularly like the pain aspects, and Mm -hmm. then try to like understand it and as if it exists in the same way in every context, right? It doesn't. I really think catharsis is the most important and sometimes neglected word left out of the BDSM conversation. Because, you know, it's called play, but it also is a play. It's kind of a little drama that two people are enacting. And, you know, sometimes we go to the theater, we go see movies and things happen that we wouldn't ever want to have happen to ourselves or anyone else in real life. And we experience this kind of cathartic purging uh, of our fears and in, in some of us our fears are eroticized and that cathartic purging involves play involves sex play yeah, yeah, and attraction yeah. um okay you're yeah. a sex edu- you're a sex and pleasure educator too uh would you be willing yeah. to take a couple of my listeners questions with me and tackle them absolutely hi dan i'm a mid-20s bisexual woman living in the pacific northwest and I've been noticing a disturbing trend recently. I was in the grocery store and a man was hitting on me. And then in the course of him hitting on me, he said, have you been going to any of the protests? And I said, oh, yeah, I've been to one. It was um, cool to see everyone there and talk to him a little bit about that. And then I said, 
have you been? And he said, oh, I've been going every day. I've been hit by rubber bullets. I've been tear gassed. Yesterday, I had to carry a man over my shoulder. And I just thought it was pretty bizarre that he was using that to hit on me. And this was a white man. So I was like, okay, whatever. That's one guy who's using that as kind of a self-serving way to hit on someone. And then recently, I've been checking out Hinge and looking um, and trying to talk to women in the Midwest because I'm moving there. And many white women on Hinge are putting profiled pictures of them at protests. And then um, one of them said that a life goal of hers was to abolish the police. And her simple pleasures were the sky, front porches, ACAB, vulnerability, and overthrowing capitalism. Anyway, I find it really bizarre that people are using this um, to try to make themselves look more attractive, and it seems kind of inappropriate. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. So is this kind of, I guess, performative, flirtatious wokeness inappropriate? So I think this is such an interesting thing, and I I think – it always ties to like things around identity. So I'm not even going to lie. All of my um, dating apps, like my OkCupid, my Tinder, everything have always had since the first time I ever made one, my politics, like it says, communist. It says all cops are, all cops are bastards. Like it says all of these things because it helps me kind of rule out who like, oh, you don't like that I said fuck police and we would not get along. But I think about when it's like white folks, you know, we're thinking about the differences between allyship and accomplices. And I think we're in this like era where, you know, everyone has seen that picture where a white person goes and builds a well in Africa or starts a school in Africa and takes a picture with a bunch of black kids, African kids, and Uh posts it and feels good about themselves. Sometimes I get those feelings when I look at someone's like bio on Tinder and it's like a white person and it's like, one picture of them at a protest and they like wrote one line about something political um, or to the caller's examples of like <laughs> this being part of like picking them up and hitting on them. I am um, a very critical person, like as a Scorpio and just like as a person who's extremely critical. So I would be really critical of these things. And I think it just takes a little bit of time to kind of figure out like, where does this person lie? Like this person of privilege, where do they lie on the spectrum of like accomplice and allyship? Are they doing this? for performativity reasons or is it actually genuine or is it like somewhere nuanced in between that? And I usually don't think the best about people. So I'd be like quite left. <laughs> but that's a, that's a judgment that you're going to make uh, an assessment yeah. about whether the, the performance is, you know, manipulative, I guess, or, you know, just trying to get into somebody's pants by leveraging or weaponizing how, you know, that you're on the right side of this, issue but Mm -hmm. you think we can put out there our politics online just to spare us the attentions of trump voters right or people who whose politics are so antithetical to yours that you don't want to waste your time with them well yeah but i think that's also that 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 aspect of this being an assessment you know and like it also depends on my capacity at the day if it's like earlier in the day i might have more space in my heart to be like you know what this is better than a trump supporter or something or clearly they're not in the kkk so, <laughs> um, but then by the end of the day, if I have decision fatigue, I might be a lot more like critical. Um, and I think that's just like, you just have to assess your own kind of capacity um, where you're at and be like, does this seem like it's worth it, worth engaging? And sometimes it's not, because I think also when you talk to people, you then start to, you, you can notice very quickly, like the performativity. Hi, Dan. I have two questions. The first is that I 
don't think that I like the feeling of a vibrator as much as other women. And I'm wondering if you can recommend any sex toys that I might like. I don't mind the vibration on my clit, but after a while, like it's hard for me to come. And what really helps me is to have more of like a rubbing motion. So I usually end up using my fingers, which is fine, but it can get kind of tiring. And so I'm wondering if you have a sex toy recommendation. My second question is that I really enjoy having partnered sex. I really get really turned on when I'm having partnered sex, but in order to actually have an orgasm, I have to disconnect completely from the moment and fantasize. And it can take like a minute or two where basically I'm just in another world um, having a fantasy and it's definitely in the realm of BDSM. So I'd be open to exploring that with a partner, but I just haven't had uh, someone that close. So my question is, I'd love to be able to come and have an orgasm while I'm staying in the moment with my partner because I think that would be really, uh, really pleasurable. And also, I don't really know how to tell guys to stop talking for a second <laughs> and just leave me alone so I can come. Do you have any? I, I have a sex toy that I saw years ago that I wrote a post about. Uh, it's called the Squeal. And it's this sort of rotating wheel of little tongues. I called it the pocket altar boy, which is very offensive. And I do not endorse calling the squeal a pocket <laughs> altar boy. But they're kind of like child-sized tongues. Maybe that would work for the caller. Are there any sex toys that you're aware of that rub instead of vibrate? I don't know. You know, because it's so funny when I was listening to that. I am like the exact opposite. I have like the magic wand and I have things that like vibrate even harder. Like I need all the horsepower possible on my clit. Um, but when I think about these things, cause I've really kind of stopped buying sex toys and, and trying to find household items, especially like during quarantine. Um, you know, sometimes I've used my toothbrush or sometimes I use this, um, I don't know what it's called, but it's like this gadget that you could like mix things with, but it's like a handheld blender and the motor on it is like very low. And so you can like have a little bit of vibration and then you can use that to rub on yourself and maybe like, if you can't find a sex toy that works exactly the way you're looking, trying to be creative with things in your house is what I've had to, to do. There's also some new <laughs> suction sex toys out there that instead of vibrating the clit, that. create a kind of, you know, it's sort of like those uh, penis pumps, but for clits. Yeah. Uh, and create yeah. a kind of uh, suction feeling. Maybe that would please the caller. What I, what I actually wanted to play this for you, obviously, is because she's having vanilla sex with her partners. But in order to climax, she has to kind of check out, fantasize about BDSM. Yeah. Yeah. And the obvious answer to one of the questions related to this is how does you stay in the moment? Well, maybe have BDSM sex would help you stay in the yeah. moment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. after that, um, she wonders how to, she's like, how does she tell guys to shut up and that so that she can fantasize? Yeah. And that reminds me, I mean, I don't know how old this person is at all, but it reminds me of me like in my, like in college and not being able to advocate for my sexual pleasure and thinking that it was selfish for me to advocate for my sexual pleasure and learning in BDSM, like BDSM really like dismantling. Well, first of all, that like sex ends with orgasm, specifically the man's orgasm. So like being able to have sex for longer periods of time, but that, that don't have a certain end goal has been really useful so that I don't have this like, oh, I just have to get to this finish line and then I get like really anxious about, am I ever going to be able to finish in climax? Now it's just like, we can imagine this in any way that we want to imagine this. And there's so much like freedom and flexibility with that. But also I think 
it's probably also why a lot of my partners come out of like certain communities like BDSM and queer communities, because I now feel, you know, I've learned as a dom to advocate for myself, but I also tend to seek people that are comfortable with that advocating, you know, and that mm-hmm. are familiar with like, like boundary negotiation and like different kinds of sex so that when I want to have these conversations and this is kind of like what you were saying earlier, people are really against like the communication aspect and think that it's like not sexy. So it's like, hello, we're going to hook up on the first time. Like we're, if we're going to hook up, we're going to talk about it. And so I'll be able to be like, I need the moment to look like this if I'm going to come or I want to try this. And I think it's easier said than done. I'm so much more used to talking about sex. Now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't be queer if, you, if you're incapable of talking about sex, at least to some extent, <laughs> sex and identity. But what I've always found, and I wish, you know, th- this is a woman calling, she's, her sex partners are, are, are men. What I was given very early when I you know, started having sex with other men as I came out as a gay guy was every same-sex gay male encounter began with the guy saying to me, what are you into? And it was so empowering wow. to be asked that question because there were no assumptions that could be made. You know, a man and a woman go to bed together and the assumption is, well, they've consented to sex. It's going to be PIV, vaginal intercourse. The the discussion can end now because consent has been granted and everything else is assumed. And two men get to yes and the conversation continues because you can't make assumptions about – and, you know, what are you into? And then you got to rule anything in, anything out. And I just like listened to your question and thought no one's ever said what are you into none of her sex partners have ever looked at her after they got to yes we are going to have sex yes we both want this and looked at her and said what are you into which opened up a space for her to say bdsm that's what i'm into that's what turns me on absolutely yeah yeah and also honestly it made me i felt really sad when i listened to that call i felt really sad and i always think about like the, the amount of people in our world that don't have access to these kinds of um, freeing and welcoming sexual spaces. Mm-hmm. Like when I finally, you know, and again, kind of like what we're both saying, it's not, it's two parts. It's being comfortable to ask for what you want, but it's also someone giving you the room for that. And I think that's what I got first. I got someone asking me, <laughs> what are you into? What do you like? And that is where I got to practice advocating for myself. And it's yes. just tragic. <laughs> It, it is really tragic. It, it makes me really sad. And, and you know, the, the other sort of part of that is people sometimes feel like, well, I might want to say what I'm into, but I fear rejection. Okay, well, then if you're yeah. having sex you're not into and that person doesn't want the kind of sex that you want, you should want to be rejected by that person. You should yeah. get to rejection more quickly so then you can move on to somebody who does want what you want. And, of course, you can't be queer and be out without, like, staring down the fear of rejection. You had to like work through yeah, that yeah. And, and, and accept it and yeah. be okay with it. And a lot of straight people, they just coast along without ever like working through their fear of rejection, without ever getting to what are you into kind of empowering questions and conversations. Yeah. And it's uh, why I do what I do. And it makes me sad. Mistress Velvet, Chicago's premier African dominatrix. That was so great. I, I hope you'll come back on the show. It was really wonderful speaking with you about these things. That was so fun. Thanks for having me. Mistress Velvet, you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Miss V Chicago, and her website is miss-velvet.com. Thank you again. I hope we can talk again soon. Thank you. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a cis female and Magnum subscriber from Vancouver, BC in her late 20s. I have a question about bed frames. My boyfriend and I have been together for about two years, and in that time, we've broken two bed frames, and we're on to our third together. 
We aren't using uh, like secondhand half broken beds either, um, although we're not buying extremely top of the line stuff. We're renting right now, so we don't want to invest in anything super high end or expensive right now. We both have a fairly high libido and enjoy a pretty healthy sex life, although fairly vanilla. We've looked online and haven't found much advice. Do you have any advice or recommendations for buying bed frames that can endure an active sex life for over a year? Is anyone else having this issue? Well, good for you. You and your boyfriend with the active sex life, the destroyer of beds. <laughs> like the breaker of chains. Remember that show we were all obsessed with? The breaker of chains. You are the destroyer of beds. Congratulations. Uh, you might want to opt until you can afford to buy a very sturdy platform bed or much sturdier bed frame knowing what you know about you two when you fuck and what it does to the furniture to fuck not in the bed that you've got now or to fuck on the floor or to just have a mattress on the floor until such a time as you can afford a high quality shock proof you two fucking on top of it proof bed frame all right before we get to your response calls let's read the tweets kendra holiday tweets I'm a sex worker. Despite you advising against it, Dan, I thought I would try having some masked sessions with my clients. To find out what happened, to find out how those masked sessions went for Kendra Holiday, go to Kendra's blog, thebeautifulkind.com, and read the post titled, Trump, the Biggest Cock Block of All Time. Thank you, Kendra. SMG tweets, catching up on the Savage Lovecast Magnum episodes now that I'm back at work regarding episode 715. Good sex can dilate your cervix, suck out some uterine lining, and jumpstart your period as told to me by an awesome nurse practitioner at hashtag Planned Parenthood. The more you know. Thank you for sharing. SMG rhymes with quiche. has also been catching up on old shows and she tweets, listening to episodes of hashtag Savage Lovecast, I was too depressed to listen to early in quarantine and all I can think now is, well, at least this girl doesn't have to wear a hot dog costume to that wedding. I think about that hot dog girl all the time. She was the woman in episode 698. That is 21 episodes ago for those of you who are marking time in quarantine by Lovecasts. She was this woman who was invited to a wedding where all the guests had to wear costumes that they had submitted for pre-approval to the bride. That wedding was canceled along with some other weddings that guests were no doubt relieved to learn were canceled. But lots of lovely weddings for cool, lovely, chill people, the kind of people who don't care what you wear to their wedding so long as you're there. Their weddings also got canceled. The hot dog wedding couple can go fuck themselves, but to all the cool, chill couples out there who've had to postpone or scale back your weddings, my heart really does go out to you. But I know, since you're cool and chill, you were able to roll with it. And that ability, the ability to roll with it, that is going to serve you well during your married lives. And finally, a big thank you to Sophie, who turned her sister Amelia onto the Savage Lovecast in December. Sophie and Amelia, sisters, took a trip to Europe not too long ago, right before everything shut down, back when trips to Europe were something we could do. And they passed the time on a long flight listening to the Lovecast together. And now Amelia is addicted, just like Sophie, to see Amelia's Savage Lovecast fan art. Check out her Instagram account at sensitive.cactus. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I was just listening to the Love is Not Tourism call on episode 718, and the amazing privilege behind this complaint is flooring me. These countries are not allowing Americans in for a very good public health reason. The virus doesn't care if you're coming there for a relationship or if you're coming there for tourism. Either way, you could be bringing it in. Versus our current policies in the U.S. that have been separating families for quite a while now, don't have a great public health reason, don't have a great anything behind them. 
And I don't think we're pouring half the energy into reuniting those families as we are into making sure that Americans get to Europe to see their boyfriends. So I, I know it's not one or the other, but holy cow, I, I feel like we're pretty hypocritical as a country right now if we expect to be able to go places that are barring us for a great reason, and yet we're still separating families right and left. Hi, this is in response to 718. Just calling to say that, you know, I was making saute in the kitchen, and I was watching the cheese bubble, and I got aroused. And I got to say, it reminded me of Emily Nagoski's stats that females have a higher chance of arousal non-concordance, like 10% where it correlates with physical arousal and stimulus arousal, where you get the physical response, but it's not actually what you want or what you're aroused by, whereas men have like a 50-50, which is a much higher correlation. So I suppose that a lot of physical reaction in women could be just from simple satisfaction. So you're fine, girl. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in response to the woman that was ashamed of being turned on by ice cream. Well, just the other day, I was shirtless, and I went to plug in my cell phone, and I dropped the plug cord, and it whipped me in the nipple pretty hard. And honestly, I was a little turned on. I've never been into BDSM, so I would just say, if something like that happens, just enjoy it. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Better yet, use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question. It's better sound quality. And email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Give the gift to the Savage Lovecast. If someone you know, if someone you love, whose name might be Amelia, really enjoys the Savage Lovecast, you can give them the magnum. Twice as much Savage Lovecast, more guests, more calls, no ads. Subscribe and gift subscriptions at savagelovecast.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Mistress Velvet on Twitter at Miss V Chicago. You can find her website at miss-velvet.com. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech heavy at risk you and Nancy. Well, I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for